It is true. I, I do uh, pray for this congregation, and I was thinking uh, in the first service, just triggered me, uh, that sometimes you, if you wonder, God, is, are you actually hearing me? And I remember uh, this week someone reminded me of it. Uh, in fact, about a year and a half ago, uh, a member of our congregation called me up and said, I just have had this nagging thought that I'm supposed to tell you is that your prayers that you've been praying for breakthrough for families in this church, God has heard them and is going to answer. That's what, that's what this person said. I, I remember having that conversation and I, we went out for, for, for breakfast this week and uh, he not only reminded me of that conversation, he then told me the rest of the story that I hadn't heard was that the very next day after making that call, heaven kind of opened in this guy's life and the kind of breakthrough he was telling me was going to happen in our church happened in his life the very next day. God exploded into his life in the kind of breakthrough that we've been praying for for every one of us. Because we pray for you. We pray, we pray that you don't just get healed of your ingrown toenail. We pray that God would so manifest himself in your life that you would be a different person because he's there. That he would change you and transform you from the inside out making angry people gracious, turning greedy people into to generous saints. Uh, and, and, and he's doing that in our midst, and we're going to keep on praying those kind of prayers for as long as I'm here anyway, which seems like forever, right? Half my life. I love it. I love it. It's so good. I, I, I'm uh, grateful for the, the opportunity to be here and be part of your, your lives. Um, this last week, another reason for just celebrating uh, on Wednesday, uh, the Share Food Bank held their first food depot in our basement on Wednesday, and uh, it was awesome. It was so incredible. Went down and and, and to see uh, it was it was kind of a dichotomy. On Thursday night, we've been doing Alpha, the Alpha class here, where we put on this lovely meal on Thursday nights, and it's like downstairs. I don't know if you've been down there recently, but. It, it, they've turned it into a, like a fine dining establishment for our Alpha course, and they serve these amazing meals. And the day before, it's kind of like this Turkish Moroccan bazaar, you know, like it's like this marketplace, and there's tables laden with food and, and uh, cultures of every background and single parents that are there and, and new Canadians, and they're going around and, and, and serving themselves to these, um, this amazing food. And I thought, God is smiling right now. This is the kind of thing we, we want to be as a church, and we got a chance to do that. By the way, if you want to get involved in that, we just want to make this really easy for you. If you happen to have time on a Wednesday uh, during the daytime, maybe you're retired, you're a student, you have some time, uh, you can come on by and check it out, first of all. You're welcome to, to come and, and just spy out the land. And, and if you want to volunteer in some way, the best way to do that is just to actually come on a Wednesday and you can sign up there at 10, between 10.30 and 3. But really, the best time would be kind of between 10.30 and noon. Come and you can register as a volunteer. So Share actually manages all of that. We're not connected with the running of the food bank. We're supporting it in every way we can. And so just so you know, uh, you, can, you can get involved just by showing up here between sort of 10.30 and 1, and, and they'll get you connected, okay? One final thought, just want to avoid some confusion. A couple of Sundays ago, Angel and I were away. We, were, we had a little mini holiday, and uh, some of you would know I'm, I'm having a sabbatical later this year, and rumor was that I was on sabbatical already. I had a bunch of concerned people, I guess we won't see you until after you're back, and they're thinking it's, you know, like we're gone. We're here. Uh, it starts in July. So, you know, and, and I have this theory about sabbaticals. Two things. Uh, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> you won't even miss me. Uh, and then the other one that's probably more important is distance makes the heart grow fonder. That's what, something my dad used to say. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. I fig- figure you'll love me more when I come back. Eh? Yeah? True? Maybe? No? Really? I don't get any nods. Maybe the odd, you know, awkward smile. Okay, I'm not coming back. That's it. I'm not, it's not coming back. Uh, we're starting a new uh, uh, series this week on the book of Daniel. book of Daniel is this most strange and wonderful book in the Old Testament, and it's got a fascinating setting. 
the, the city and the land of Babylon. And, and the book is named after its title, named after Daniel, who was a Hebrew, who was a refugee, really. He, he was uprooted from his home because of war and was deported to a strange and foreign land. And uh, as part of my birthday celebrations this week, some friends that I, I hang out with at the local Starbucks shop, we went out for dinner. And, and over, over dinner, I thought, well, I'll get some sermon research in here. And so I asked my friends, I said, so uh, have any of you ever been in a scenario where you know, you're, you're traveling and you felt so lost, so disoriented, so out of place? Can you, can you share a story? And, and, and someone, one of our friends shared about a time when she and her husband and her little infant daughter, uh, because of his work, they were kind of transplanted briefly for about a three-week period in, in, in a small town in Germany. And she, here she is, she's, you know, got her little girl and, and her husband's off working 12-hour days, and she's left to herself in this little apartment, and and she's wandering around. She doesn't know what to do because it's all in German. The television is all in German. And she's getting out of the house because she's stir crazy and walking with her stroller and can't find her way back to her apartment and can't ask anyone for help. No one speaks English. And, and she kind of described this season as being one of the most, uh, one of the loneliest seasons, this three weeks, was like the longest three weeks of her life. She felt so disoriented and so lost. Have you ever felt like that? We have, we have some former refugees here, newcomers who've come to Canada, and you would know exactly what this is like. Maybe, maybe that's where you're at right now. You know, maybe it's not anything to do with being part of a different country, but, but it could be you found yourself in a job where you kind of feel like a foreigner. You, you kind of feel like the, the, the social or the ethical environment has you feeling out of place. Or maybe you're taking a, a class in school and, and the content of the course is challenging your core beliefs. Or, or it could be a, a family or relationship where, where there's a clash of values and you're just kind of like a fish out of water in that environment. And here's a thought. What if it was God that actually puts you there in that place? You know, place... <laughs> Where, where it doesn't seem to have any logical sense to it, but God has some kind of purpose in it. And so we're going to begin looking at the, the life of Daniel and his friends today. We'll see how God moved Daniel from a place that he never would have chosen on his own, a place far from home, a place disconnected from the institutions that, that supported and affirmed his belief in the God of the Bible. God took him to Babylon, a, a culture we're going to see was hostile to the biblical God. And the, and the question really comes up, how do I live as a, a believer in the biblical God in an unbelieving world? I mean, how do I, how do I live as a follower of Jesus in a world, in a, a culture where all the institutions seem to be hostile to my faith in, in, and, and to the God I believe in? That's kind of the question. And, 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 and a book like Daniel, I would suggest, is incredibly relevant to us today. Um, years, years ago in Canada, we might have been able to say that, that Canada was a very supportive place for our Christian faith. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, it was 1970s, you know, we still said the Lord's Prayer as the first thing we did in our class at school. We don't live in that Canada anymore, not even anything remotely like it. We're now a lot more like Daniel. We're, we're believers living in a day where we have got to be asking the question, how can we live a life of integrity and faithfulness to God in a pluralistic, unbelieving world? Now, I think as we look at Daniel's life and his friends over the next weeks, we're going to get... We're, <laughs> We're going to get a lot out of it as we think about living by faith and, I would suggest, even thriving in a world hostile to faith. So if you have a Bible with you, and we have loners at the back there, our ushers will give you one if you'd like, but if you turn to Daniel chapter 1. In my Bible, it is on page 827. That's no help to you. It's just after Ezekiel, about that far in. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen as well. We'll have the, the scripture there for you. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1, till close to the end. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphenus, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishnael, and and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishnael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Boy, I tell you, these names are a mouthful for the reader. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel then said to the guard, when the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom." Let's pray. God, just uh, this morning, Lord, um, you want breakthroughs in our lives, God, and, and, and uh, this whole deal of following Jesus. Uh, Lord, we just don't get it sometimes, and so would you help us this morning to learn what it means to live in this world, to live and thrive in, in our Babylon, and may we learn from Daniel and his friends. Would you speak to each heart? <laughs> we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in Daniel 1, we read that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and surrounded it with his armies. Uh, Some of you might know some of that history. They they did it twice, actually. In in 587 B.C. or around there was the year that they they leveled Jerusalem. They knocked it to the ground. They, They destroyed the temple and carried off all of the people to Babylon. Um, But about 10 years before, they'd also come and invaded and had conquered the Israelites, conquered Jerusalem. And and what they did that time was they took a smaller group of Hebrews, uh, about 10,000 of them, who were the professional classes. They were the intellectuals, the thinkers of that day. Basically, they took the the military leaders, the government, the educators, the, the scholars, uh, the, the wise ones, and they took these and their families to Babylon to live there. Now, why? Well, it's actually incredibly crafty and shrewd of them. Instead of having to, to destroy the whole nation, how do you subdue a whole nation subject to you? How do, how do you get them to submit to the Babylonian will and fit in with the Babylonian empire? Very simple strategy. Take the leaders. <laughs> Take the influencers and bring them to Babylon and, and Babylonize them culturally. <laughs> yeah, uh, Babylonize. Uh, isn't that a great word? Babylonize? I love it. It sounds so, like, like 
like something that happens to somebody, that, and it's not a good thing, you know, like, and it maybe happens to their brain. Oh, what happened to him? He's been Babylonized. No? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, that person, that one person, yeah, who's with me. Uh, it's actually something to do with the brains. What they were basically doing was, was brainwashing them, you know, trying to, you know, basically infect their thinking and, and convert and, and infect their faith. And, and one of the things we know is that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were among the first Hebrews in this wave of deportees that came to Babylon. They were brought there to be Babylonized in the ways and values of Babylon. Babylon's a place. A part of, it was the empire in that day. Like, like the superpower, like the United States or like the USSR back in the day. Something like that, right? That's right. That's right. About 600 years before Jesus, around there. Good question. Uh, so verse 2. The story kind of moves along quite quickly here in, in, in Daniel. We, we read that it was the Lord himself who delivered King Jehoiakim of Judah into the hands of the Babylonians which has implications when you think about it. It means that, that God, through a, a military takeover by King Nebuchadnezzar, guides his people from the promised land to Babylon, a, a land that they thought of as an evil empire. He leads them from a, a place of, of power and privilege to a place of powerlessness. And it, we, we probably know that there are times when God does just the opposite where he raises up people to, to positions and to places of power and, and privilege. And we, we're, we're really quite quick to celebrate that when that happens in our culture. But, but there are times when God in his sovereignty will call us to a place of powerlessness. It, it seems to be part of, of the way of Jesus in a sense. And, and it can seem so uh, counterintuitive, kind of it doesn't make sense because we think God's purpose can best be carried out when God's people are in power. That's not always the case. We, we, we've said this before, but uh, one of the, the best contexts to become strong in faith is to live with some resistance to your faith, to experience actually some pushback. And we saw that recently as we studied the early church, how they flourished, the, 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 the first followers grew in spite of very desperate times where it was very difficult to be a Christian. And today in parts of the world where, where generally it is not advantageous, maybe economically or politically, to follow Christ, uh, observers tell us time and time again that people in those contexts tend to have stronger faith than those who live in the Bible, where the Bible belt, I should say, where there are all kinds of advantages to being part of a church. Uh, fascinating to me. Years ago, uh, trading companies in North America were trying to transport live fish to Japan because they love raw fish in Japan. But what, they, they were encountering a difficulty as they transported in these ships, these big tanks filled with fish, that by the time they, they arrived at their destination, about half the fish in the tanks were dead. And so it's like, how can we overcome this? And, and, and somebody had this crazy idea, and what they did was they put a, an octopus in the tank with a fish, which is a crazy idea because an octopus is a predator and fish are their prey. So totally nuts. But what they found was by the time, after these fish traveled across the ocean with this octopus, this constant threat there, they said 70 to 80% of the fish actually survived instead of just 50% before. And, and being in a place where you're challenged, and I, I've found this in my life, uh, you probably found it in yours, in seasons where it's been harder, or you've, you've encountered great obstacles to the life of faith, that can make you stronger. And so God might actually put us in an uncomfortable place in order to surprisingly grow us in that place. But he also puts us in that, that kind of place so that we might be a light there to make a difference. Um, prior to becoming a pastor, I uh, worked in a couple of group homes for the mentally handicapped, and uh, it, was a, it was a good job, but I, I found it was kind of a dark place spiritually. I was the only Christian in that place, and, and everyone had strong, strong, passionate, 
unbelievers, if you want to call it that, right? They, they, whatever they believe, they, they didn't believe God, but they, whatever they believe, they believe it powerfully. And it was, I, I was coming, to, I felt assaulted every time I, I, I came to work and they knew, me, knew of me as a Christian. And so I f- feel like I got, you know, sort of up against it all the time. And, and even though it was a dark place spiritually, and I don't think my light was all that bright, it was brighter because of its darkness. Candle in the dark can, can shine a, a lot of light. And, and we're gonna find one of the remarkable outcomes of Daniel's exile in Babylon is God uses him and his three friends to be a profound light in Babylon. I mean, in a few weeks, we're gonna look at a story that causes King Nebuchadnezzar to command the Babylonians to worship Daniel's God. It's just an unbelievable story. It's pretty awesome. Another thing we see in this text this morning, Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's royal diet of rich food and fine wines. They volunteer instead to go on a simple diet of of vegetables and and water. And I kind of know that that some of my vegetarian friends just love this part of the passage. They're like, yeah, finally. And they love it because after this 10-day period of testing that these guys go through, the, the, these guys, these boys are, are healthier. They're, they're better nourished than all the others who are eating the king's food. My hunch is that their flourishing had nothing to do with the absence of meat. Amen? Yes? Well, one Old Testament scholar, Tremper, uh, uh, what's his name? Tremper Logman. No, that's not quite his name, but you get the idea. A scholar who studies the Old Testament, he suggests one of the reasons that they refused to eat the king's food was to demonstrate that it was God and not this special treatment by King Nebuchadnezzar that caused them to flourish. And and, and that's kind of the thing. Isn't that true? Sometimes when, when you and I are at a distinct disadvantage, sometimes when we're weakest, and yet when we're still able to thrive, we're stable, still able to flourish there, who's more likely to get the glory? Who's more likely to get the credit in those cases? You're not gonna be patting your own back when, when it's just obvious you are weak or you are disadvantaged. You're gonna, you're gonna give glory to God. You're gonna give him credit. And that's what happens with Daniel. He's always pointing us to God and how God is, is moving and working. Another important lesson from this passage, because it's clear not only is it God's will to have them in Babylon, it's also God's will to have them engage in Babylonian culture. Uh, there's a, a great couple of chapters in Jeremiah 28, 29. By the way, Jeremiah was writing uh, in a day in the, the Babylonian exile era. So he's writing at this time. There's other books in the Bible that, that did the same. Ezekiel would be a good example of that. But in Jeremiah 28, 29, we read about these prophets who were speaking to the Hebrew people who were living in exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah 28 introduces us to the false prophet Hananiah, who gives the people a message they, I think they probably wanted to hear. He he basically says, in essence, don't settle down in Babylon because God is going to rescue you from there. Don't unpack your bags. You know, don't get comfortable. Uh, you're, You're on the way home, right? So stay in your holy little huddles, live on the margins. In fact, a lot of the the Hebrew people were living kind of outside of the city, away from the heart of things. But it's Jeremiah, the true prophet says in in Jeremiah 29, it's it's basically that it's God's will for the Hebrew people to be in Babylon now. And he goes on to say, you know, build homes and settle down and and get married and raise children. And then he says a line that that has come to challenge me and has come to challenge us as a congregation of of the kind of church we're called to be here in the Tri-Cities and the greater Vancouver region. He says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God God calls his people here to to live in Babylon and invest in Babylon, this this pagan place, and and that's our call. We're to live in Babylon, you know, in, in places where God isn't even recognized, even acknowledged. You know, this is our question. How do we do this? Because, folks, again, we live in a, in a part of the world, a city and a region. The greater Vancouver region is, is pretty much one of the most unchurched regions in the country of Canada. This is no Bible 
belt that we're living in. So how do we do this? How do we uh, live as people of faith when we're clearly in the minority? Or how do you live in a family situation where, where you as a Christian are the only Christian in your family? Or what about work? There are those of you who, who maybe find yourself in jobs that seem to be blatantly opposed to faith. Let's take a look again at Daniel. Daniel, um, he's got two names. He's got his Hebrew name, Daniel, which means my judge is the Lord. But he's also been given this new name when he arrives in Babylon. It's called Belteshazzar. This rolls off the tongue. Let everyone say it with me, Belteshazzar. You guys are terrible students. It comes from the same root word as the word Bel, which was the name of a Babylonian god, one of their gods. And somehow, somehow Daniel doesn't protest this. We don't have record of that. He, he won't eat the king's food, but he somehow lives with this new name. Commentators point out that, that these dual names symbolize a kind of dual identity for Daniel, that, that he belongs to God, but he's also a citizen of the world. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says, we're, we're called to be spiritually bicultural. I like that. Because Jesus actually said something along those lines, didn't he? In John 17, where he says, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. I, I'd suggest that, that when you're in the minority, you're, you're probably prone towards two temptations. One is to, to separate and, and curl up into ourselves, kind of like a hedgehog, right? You know, Hide <laughs> with, with, with prickles pointing outwards at the world, right? The other is to, to be like a chameleon. Chameleons just blend in. They, they just begin to look like their surroundings. I like how a, a wise 19th century pastor named Wilbur Chapman put it. He said this. He says, it's not the ship in the water, but the water in the ship that sinks it. So it's not the Christian in the world, but the world in the Christian that constitutes the danger. As John, John 17, 5, Jesus said, he said, my prayer is not that you, Father, take them out of the world, but do what? Keep them from the evil one. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. As we see in the, in the text, the, the Daniel and his friends become fully immersed in the the Babylonian culture. Daniel didn't protest when they changed his name. He, he accepted his new language, Aramaic, which is he used partly to write part of this book. Uh, and then Daniel didn't try to flunk out of U of B, University of Babylon, but rather he was top of his class. In fact, tw verse 20 says, when, when Nebuchadnezzar tested him at the end of his three years of training in, in all manner of wisdom and knowledge, Daniel wasn't just two to three times as smart. We're told that he was 10 times smarter. So he's a citizen of the world. But we also see at the same time that he resists kind of com complete surrender to the culture by not eating the king's food. Now, why? Because the, the, the food and drink probably wasn't wrong in and of itself. We know Daniel refused wine, but, but wine isn't, isn't prohibited by God in, in, in Scripture. And I can hear some of you saying, yay! But at the same time, God very makes it clear that we're not to, he warns us against excessive drinking and drunkenness, which some of you are going, oh no! But Scripture just simply does not prohibit drinking. Scholars suggest that, that Daniel and his friends refused the king's royal food because it had been dedicated to pagan deities. To eat the king's food was to kind of submit fully to the ways of the king, to his rule. To eat that food specifically was to worship. So better to become a vegetarian, as awful as that is, than eat the king's meats and, and fine wines, and in doing so, bow to the culture. So on the one hand, Daniel and his friends are engaged in the culture. On the, on the other hand, they thoughtfully resisted by, by not eating the food and, and drinking the king's wine. And I think that's how we're meant to live in Babylon. On one hand, be part of the culture. But on the other hand, resist and, and be countercultural. We do not, as tempting as it is, to, to curl up like a hedgehog. And, and, we, and at the same time, we don't go the other extreme and, and blend in just like everyone else. Blend in like a chameleon. We're meant to be in the world, but not of it. So most importantly, how do we 
how does this play out in our lives? Well, I want to commend to you a practice this morning. It's, it's one of the antidotes to not being Babylonized. I can't even say it well, can I? Babylonized. Resisting the brainwashing of Babylon is going to involve using your brain. Surprise, surprise. It's going to require thought and reflection and prayer. Uh, Romans uh, 12, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, right? He goes on to say, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you hear that? Does it not kind of describe a process that we're going to go through? The renewing of our mind is going to take place, and, and as that happens, we'll be able to kind of discern We'll be able to test, like, what is good? What is right? What, what am I to do here? Right? We're, you know, the, the thing is, in our day, we're probably not going to have to wrestle with the question regarding food sacrifice to idols. Uh, that's probably not your issue. But in every day, in every age, there's that thing, actually many things that we have to, to wrestle with. What is the right response before God in that issue? I mean, we're, we're, my, my own birthday card kind of tells you that. They didn't have to think about how do we handle uh, mobile technology like a smartphone that gives us access to, to this big, wide world that we carry around in our pockets and seems to have the impact of taking over our, our lives a little bit, right? They didn't have to wrestle with that 50 years ago. They had their own issues 50 years ago. We're going to continue to have to, to think about what is the, the, the royal foods that we need to reject in our day? What is the king's food of our day? And I want to just talk real honestly about alcohol for a minute this morning. You, you know, I, I sometimes use food as a comfort in my life. And we live in a world where, where there lots of people treat alcohol the same way. They use alcohol as kind of a, a way of nursing their hurts, Right? And so I'd suggest we need to ask if or, or why we're going to drink. I, I would suggest that for young adults in our day, this is barely even a question, even for Christians. They, they haven't necessarily wrestled with, should I be drinking or not? The, assume, the assumption in our day is, you're going to drink. It's, if not before you're 19, after you're 19, you're going to drink. That's the assumption for everyone. But there are reasons on, on kind of both sides to drink or not to drink. Some, some abstain for, for health reasons or, or because they want to avoid any possibility of becoming dependent on alcoholism or on alcohol or, or causing others to stumble. Those are good reasons not to drink. It's kind of one of the reasons why, why we in a lot of churches don't serve actual wine when we serve the Lord's cup or the, the bread and the cup. We serve the most excellent of alternatives, Welch's grape juice which I think is used across our land as the premier wine substitute in, in communion. But we, we do that because we, we, we actually know that there's people in our midst who, who might struggle with alcoholism or, or, or that kind of temptation. And the other thing is we know that there's those in our midst who have convictions, and we don't want to kind of rub that in their face, right? Other Christians will choose to drink in, in, in moderation as a way to enhance a meal or a way to, to socialize or for some, some of the health benefits. Um, the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy, don't just drink water, but drink some wine for your stomach, which has probably been a well-quoted passage of Scripture, I think. Don't just drink water, drink wine, right? I think so. And so there are those who, who drink with those kind of things in mind. One of our elders here at the church a few years ago had a magnet on, his, uh, on, on their fridge that, that said, um, wine is proof that God loves you, and he wants you to be happy. I like that. I grew up in a family that we, we, I think we call ourselves teetotalers. Uh, and I didn't know what that meant till later, but we, we basically abstained from alcohol. Uh, and and, and uh, we've talked about this. My mom's here today, and we, we've, we've had good conversations around that whole practice or lack thereof. But here's the deal. When I was a teenager, when I was about the age of 17, that particular summer, it was the summer, where I acquired the taste of alcohol. And uh, I abused alcohol a lot. And at the tail end of that summer, I went to a, a camp where God rocked my world. I mean, I, 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 I 
can't say anything more about it except that I went into this camp experience, this Christian camp that our, our denomination put on, and I came in really doubting that God was real, and I came out, and I've never been able to doubt that he's been real since. <laughs> like, it was like that kind of, like, conversion experience. And I came out of that camp, and I just knew I, I can't drink anymore. It's just not right. And so for a number of years, I, I didn't drink. But I've come to a place where I now drink in moderation. I, I, I try to do it thoughtfully. There, there are times where I, I will drink, and there are times where I will not drink. Um, there, there are some situations where I'm concerned because of my role as a pastor, that if, if I'm drinking in front of others, uh, and, and so if I'm in, in a crowd that I don't know very well, I might actually abstain, especially if they're looking to me as Pastor Derwin, because I wonder whether they will not use my role as a pastor as an excuse for them to drink. Derwin's drinking, let's party, right? I don't, I don't want that to happen. But, but Angel and I found, as God's opened up our relationships with, with people outside the church, that often sharing a, a, a drink together has been something that's opened up friendship and community. And, and so those are places where, 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 where they know that my Christian faith has nothing to do whether I drink or not. That's not how they're judging it. So, by the way, I, I, want, I want to just say, with, with this specific issue of drinking and alcohol, can I say this? It is a potentially addictive substance. And you probably have somebody in your life that you know of who's, whose life maybe has been destroyed by this. So let's treat it as such, as, as, as being kind of something that we can't just do or, be, or not be thoughtful about. And I would say if, if you want to test yourself in this is, if, if, you, if you're a drinker, I would suggest that every once in a while, maybe once a year, or for a season of your life, you actually fast from drinking. Just to show whether or not you are just hold on that thought, Sarah, so that you can actually discern whether or not you have, a tru- have trouble in this area, whether it's become maybe unhealthy or unsafe for you. Did you want to? Well, what I was going to say is that like, we actually had a family member that took an alcoholic, but then later on in life, they discovered that they were drinking and it was a bad And this is where you, there's no rule book for this, Sarah. Yeah. What you need, and we all need, is to discern this before God. And so Barry might decide at some point in, in his young age that, hey, this is not a good thing for me to do. I just, I just sense it, and God gives him a conviction in this area. What am I meant to do to Barry? Am I meant to judge him for his maybe apparently stinginess around this topic? No, I'm to respect him and I'm to so, so support him in that choice and, and honor him for, for that conviction that he has. And then somebody that, that maybe takes that choice, maybe they actually at some point have to discern it again. It's maybe not, not one and done, but along the way, you're actually having to thoughtfully reflect again. Is Maybe this is something that I, I need to not do anymore. And I, I know Dave, who was up here earlier in the service, uh, our elder, uh, he says he did enough drinking before he was 20 that he doesn't need to drink for the rest of his life, basically. That's what he said. You see how it requires wisdom. And can I tell you what we're tempted to do? We want the rule book. Just tell us how it's done. And and Scripture just doesn't seem to offer us point-by-point instruction, specific instruction on all kinds of life situations that we're facing. He doesn't. We we have to discern it with with God. And and, and as a community, we do this together. Um, I I wonder, for, for many of us, why do we like... The rule book approach? Folks, it's just easier. <laughs> just tell us how it is. You wonder why sometimes the strict expressions of the Christian faith, there's even cults for that matter that, that would be very, very strong on certain topics. Why are they attractive? Well, because they just tell you what to do. You do this and you're in. And God says, no, it's, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you be in the world but not of the world. And, and so we, we got to provide prayerfully pursue uh, sort of thoughtful reflection, asking why I do what I do. Is it right or is it good? Um, if you're a Christian parent, just let me give you another example. And you're wondering, where do I send my kids? You know, do I, do I send them to, a, and we got families here that represent the whole spectrum who send their kids to, to private schools or Christian schools or, or they homeschool or they send them to public schools. I remember a few years ago, we were traveling through the Rockies 
And uh, we, we were coming home, and I'd called up a friend in Salmon Arm and said, could we stay at your place for the night? And our friend said, you know what, I'm out of town, but you can stay at our other friends. I mean, he literally opened up his friend's house for us. Love that. And so we're, it's kind of like a blind date. And we show up at this, this, friend's, this friend of a friend's place on our way, and we arrive there, and there, it's, it was awesome, amazing hospitality. And uh, I'm out in the back deck with a dad, and he's uh, barbecuing dinner, barbecuing hamburgers, and we're chatting. And he tells me, yeah, my, my kids, they, uh, we get talking about school. He says, they all go to the Christian school. He says, where do your kids go? And I said, um, well, they go to French immersion. And you'd think I said a swear word. French immersion. And he's like upset, obviously. He says, you can't do that to your kids. That's bad for your kids. And he went, went kind of on this little mini rant on, on, on how bad French immersion was for our children. And now I'm in kind of an awkward situation. I haven't eaten dinner yet, and I need a place to stay for the night. And so, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I said, uh, yeah, we're thinking about putting them in the Christian school. We're thinking about that. I didn't. Do I sound like that kind of, you know, I wouldn't. Thanks. What's the school of choice, according to, to Daniel? Babylonian immersion. And it might be God's will for, for a, a kid to go to a Christian school. It might be... Uh, God's will for him to, to be enrolled, him or her to be enrolled in, a, a, in secular education, we engage, resisting either becoming a hedgehog or a chameleon. We live in the world, but not of it. And I had intended to talk about the arts and how we need Christians in, in, in that world. I love Den, uh, Den, uh, Denzel Washington, who's given a lot of thought to this, uh, wrestled with being a Christian in the movie industry when you're sometimes asked to, to represent something that's very, very, seems unchristian. And uh, he had a conversation with his dad, and his, he said, Dad, his dad was a pastor, Denzel Washington's dad. And uh, he said to his dad, Dad, um, you know, should I give up acting and become a pastor? Denzel's a devoted Christian. And his dad said, Son, you have an opportunity there. I get to preach to hundreds. You get to preach to millions. Keep it up. And Denzel has tried to prayerfully, thoughtfully, and you wonder maybe some of the roles he chooses where he plays a murderer or an adulterer or uses vile language. And uh, he prayerfully thinks about and prays about every role that he takes. It's interesting. Um, one of his movies where he just plays a violent, awful guy, uh, Training Day. And uh, he was in an interview with Oprah, and she asked him, how do you choose a role like that? You say that would honor God. And he says, well, as I prayed about that script, as it came before me, uh, I thought of Cain, the first murderer in the Bible. My mind was drawn there. And then I, I remembered the passage from Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. And he thought, this, this, this movie does not celebrate this violence and this, that doesn't celebrate sin. In some senses, it's a warning against where that leads. And so he's been able to play those roles from a, from a thoughtful perspective. And we, we might be tempt, tempted to judge, and we could just say, well, he's obviously in the world. But he's seeking to live in that tension of in the world, but not of it. And you and I are going to need to do that. And, and can I say this this morning? I, I hope we can do this respectfully of one another. Like, I, I felt a little bit vulnerable actually sharing that I drink this morning because there's those of you that come maybe from strong backgrounds where it's just wrong. And you might be tempted to do the same thing to me that you, we would do to Denzel. Can we offer grace to one another as we wrestle with these things? It ought to be a loving, respectful conversation when we disagree. And, and we may not agree. We may never agree. We might see it from other angles. And, and I love that about this church is that look around. We're a crazy, diverse group of people. Yeah, some of you are just plain old crazy. <laughs> but, but can we expect that we're all going to be, you know, narrowly focused and understanding the, and interpreting the world in all the same way? So let's love each other, especially, you know, it comes back, and they'll just wrap up with this, is that it comes back to Jesus, right? Jesus is the main thing here in this church. And we're going to figure out the rest, <laughs> 
together. I, I, and, and, and actually, Scripture's pretty clear on some practices like the Ten Commandments, do not murder. That's pretty black and white about not murdering, not killing, not lying, not cheating. We, 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 you know, there's really clear sexual boundaries in Scripture. I mean, so we, um, there's some things I feel like we can be really clear about. Uh, our government introduces a motion, a medically-assisted death in Canada, and uh, that's something where, where we just go, that doesn't line up. That's pretty black and white to me. That, that, that's something that God has said, do not murder. You know, thou shalt not murder. And so that's not meant to be under our control, even though we might have great compassion on somebody who's suffering at the end of their life and would long to allow them to, to have that shortened. God has made it really clear about that issue. But there's other issues that are, that are just unclear, and we're going to need to, to wrestle that through together. Can I say together is the key? Daniel didn't do this alone. I love the fact that he had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had this little, little cadre. And uh, he had those, those who supported him. And, and, and if, you're, if you're in a job where you're kind of feeling alone, you find one other Christian in your job that, that you know, you're in that awful place and it feels like a foreign and strange land, you glom onto them and you'd start praying for that workplace. You guys support one another. And let's do that and be that for each other here in this church. Amen? Okay, team, worship team, come on up. We're gonna sing, instead of me closing in prayer right now, we're gonna actually pray this hymn that I think is a, a, a kind of prayer that, that I think Daniel might have prayed. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It's a great place to start. Would you stand with me? Let's worship together. Yeah.
thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Let's pray. Lord, consecrate us, take us, our, our hearts, our minds, our lives. We want to, we Lord, be yours. We don't want to bow the knee to Babylon. We, Lord, we don't want to uh, sign an allegiance to our country or, or to the values of this world. But God, we, we know you call us to be here. And uh, yeah, you, you've given us a purpose in it. And Lord, we, wanna, we long to fulfill that purpose, Lord, whatever it is. We want to be a light to our community. We want to show the love of Jesus to the people we work with in our schools, God, uh, to, to our neighbors, to our family. Lord, we, we want to, Lord, we want your help in discerning what's right and good in our lives. Grant us wisdom, Lord, to know that uh, we wouldn't just go with the flow, uh, but that we might have courage to to wrestle and to think with the minds you've given us and then submit to your good and perfect will. Give us the capacity to discern that, we pray. We ask these things with just thankfulness for Jesus who means the world to us. You're so good. We bless you. In Christ's name, amen. We got some good things going on at the back. It's called refreshments back there. And if you're, you're new here, uh, every service after the service, we have a prayer team that's up at the front. would love to pray with you if you have a need. Come on up. Uh, veggies and, and, and bread out that way, courtyard, free for the taking. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.